welcome to this thread of the podcast. My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something, even a donation. Thanks for listening. am I? What is my identity? These are the questions that this thread is going to explore. And it's probably the most uncomfortable thread of the podcast to begin, because there is such a sense in my world where I grew up of the individual. And I'm not comfortable now in my life thinking about myself as an individual. I have come back to a worldview and an understanding that sees me just as part of an ecosystem and my individuality is in some ways mute. It's not who who I want to be is fully embracing just the one niche, the one conglomeration of bits that make up me fading into a background of all of life and all of all of other. So the separation, the boundary of individuality uh, dissolves and I become part of the whole. One of the things that I thought I would explore in looking at myself or my identity in the context of all the other threads that I hope are weaving into a whole in these podcasts is about how the personal is the political. One person's experience can help perhaps illuminate other forces in the system, other understandings. So I decided I would talk about myself, however uncomfortable that can be at times. The theme that I wanted to start with about language that helps me talk about my identity that didn't exist when I was younger and forming it. So I grew up in Northern Ireland in a little seaside town, and it was little then, it's a bigger town now. I grew up in the times in Ireland, huge change was happening globally, and the ripples of that change were happening in Northern Ireland. I was born in the 60s, the later part of the 60s, and my parents were of their time growing up in Northern Ireland as parents were doing the things that young couples do all over the world. They were setting up a home and they were finding their livelihood and then they were having children. And I was one of three girls. What I remember from my early, early childhood is about the probably my earliest memories are are like many little tiny children and they're all about sensation so i remember i think my very earliest memory is sitting in a sandpit 
in a cloth nappy and the sensation of sitting there and feeling damp sand with my hands and eating it. I remember quite vividly what sand feels like if you take a mouthful of it and crunch on it. And I remember the feeling of sand around the edges of the cloth nappy. That was in a sand pit in the garden. And uh, that garden that I remember at the bottom of a row of terraced houses, I also remember as I grew spending a lot of time down on the edge of the garden in the hedgerow and in the little sand pit and in a little garden that my father gave me to grow seeds in. And one of the things that I remember down there was wild weeds as they probably were thought of on the edges, you know, whether those were the dandelions that we picked and blew as dandelion clocks or whether it was the sweet pea that wove into the hedge and we could pick and taste the nectar in the sweet pea, which was a favorite. And then I also remember that was the sweet taste of childhood was nectar from flowers and the sour taste was sorrel. There was uh, sour sallies or little pink trefoil flowers that we used to just, I just loved chewing on the stems of those and getting the kind of sour feeling in my mouth. And we also lived really, really close to the sea. From quite a young age, we would go down a little narrow path, down through a couple of other terrace rows and then we were on the sea and on the edge and in the rock pools. I think that, you know, I, I'd have to try to confirm with my parents, but the overall uh, sense of childhood and my childhood was of a lot of freedom, at least after school and on weekends, to go off and explore these places, these tiny little bits of thicket uh, hedge and these lanes and then being right down on the seashore and and being quite young and unaccompanied. Now, I presume I remember going to a beach around the next bay when we were accompanied and little and playing with, you know, sand and buckets and spades and all of those things. But I also remember that from still quite young that a gang of us children would go down and the assumption is we'd watch out for each other. We would explore the rock pools with sea anemones and crabs and we'd go crab fishing and use mussels for bait and all this sort of childhood. And in addition to where we lived and what we got to explore by the sea, and the sea was very, very special to me. It was very alive and full of, it was full of life, but it was also something I looked out from my windows every day and every night. And there was a headland that I could see out my window. And for me, it was alive too. And it, I imagined it coming alive at night like a kind of long land crocodile. And when I went to sleep, I would imagine that it was swimming out across the bays and would only return with its burden of houses and trees and settle back in again in the morning when I woke. And when we would be down on the beach playing not the rock pools, but the sandy beach in the other bay, I would feed the sea as a little child. I can remember this as a really favoured activity was that I would take the soft white sand from the top of the beach in my bucket and I would go down to the shore edge where the little waves or big waves were lapping in on the sand and that sand was wet and I would sprinkle my white sand along the seashore and then watch 
as the waves turned it to the darker colour of the wet sand. And for me, I was feeding the sea and I was having dialogue with the sea and I was talking to the sea. And so one of the most common descriptions of me as a child from others, there were two that I remember hearing throughout my childhood. One was, she's away with the fairies. And I, as a very little child, I think four or five, I liked fairies and fairy stories and fairy tales. I started to change into what was described as the other description was a bit of a tomboy. And that's because we were able to express a freedom of play that was non-gender specific. And I think that my father, as three daughters, he, he just let us all do things that he might have had he had a son. Maybe he'd have favoured a son in doing some activities, but he didn't seem to have that. And I'd stay to this day. My father doesn't have a view of set roles around what a child might do. And so he would make us bows and arrows. And it wasn't until I had my own children and watched him do it again that I convinced myself that I had really remembered it accurately, that he made us bows and arrows and sharpened the points. So from sort of six, seven, eight, we were playing bows and arrows with with real little bows and arrows. And I watched him do it for my own children and sharpen the points. And I thought, you did do that when I was a child, as I had remembered. And we used to climb and make bases and shelter. And there was a couple of bunker sort of buildings around. I think some of them came as layovers from bomb shelters in the north from the Second World War. But there were places we could climb up on top of. And as I said, there were these sort of hedges and thickets that we could create shelter in. And so we would run around getting mucky and creating our own little universe of of chasing and playing. The other places that we got to play and experience was our wider family. And I did very much grow up in a village, in the sense that although the town I lived in was a town and it was quite small and it was perceived anyway in those days that parents felt it was safe to let their children out, there wasn't, there wasn't the stranger danger. There wasn't the awareness perhaps of the kinds of dangers that, that worry parents today because A, they didn't exist, like the traffic wasn't the same or B, parents didn't know about them. They didn't know about abuse in the same way. They probably did teach us to not talk to strangers, but there were so few of those in my environment that there were neighbours that I would drop into and play with and talk to. And I had a kind of a round from, I think I was around nine or ten, I had a kind of a round of older people that I liked to visit. And I would go in our neighbourhood a few streets away and or on my way to and from school because we walked or cycled to primary school through a park. I would wander off. And so the away with the fairies part also came from being a daydreamy child I'd go and visit people, old ladies and old men that I could visit that we knew that would give me a a juice and a biscuit and I'd sit and listen to them. I I wish I could remember in detail what they told me or what I was talking about because I was also a very, very quiet child for a long time. I I sort of found my voice um, later. I, I had a older sister that my mother said, well, she would talk for me, so I didn't need to talk. But also I was daydreamy. I wasn't chatty until later. And then once I really found my voice, 
friends and people who know me would joke that if I found it, then I didn't know how to shut up afterwards. I became very talkative and articulate later in life. And those visits and those places that I would know were also relatives because we had a pretty big extended family, some of whom lived in the same town. And so I could go and find my cousins and I might be told to go to a particular place after school or I might go to neighbours if my parents were working. Then for holidays, a bit further afield from where we lived, I also went to my mother and father's family. They had farms. One of my aunts and uncles had a, a a pig farm at the time of my childhood and another had a dairy farm in Northern Ireland. And in the UK, in the mainland of Britain, we had other members of my father's family had moved there and two of them lived in small holdings, one in Dorset and one up in Scotland. And they had chickens and goats and some had ponies and, and this sort of thing. So we'd visit those places And then one other place that I spent a lot of time around as a child were Camp Hill communities and Camp Hill villages. And these were places that fundamentally in my family, because my grandmother had been a founding parent of Camp Hill in Ireland. My uncle David was a man with Down syndrome. And as a little boy, my grandmother had become aware of the first Camp Hill community in Scotland. And with another group of parents, she went over and spoke to Dr. Carl Koenig, who had founded this village school, if you like, community-based school that was focused on children with what were known as handicapped children when they were little, or children with disabilities. He was being inspired by Rudolf Steiner, deeply inspired by Rudolf Steiner, and thinking if he could apply some of Steiner's principles to what was called curative education, they could create something holistic. My grandmother went and they brought back these ideas to Northern Ireland, and eventually they formed the first Steiner-based Camp Hill School in the north and subsequently to to that first one, which was also in a community, were in a huge estate house and had a school and the children were there. When David, my uncle, grew up, they then formed an adult community. And so the second Camp Hill community was formed in the north. And we spent time interacting with that. We would go as children to play there, to attend performance. There was a lot of interesting arts and philosophy, you know, that came out in art and architecture and also came out in ritual and events. And they were very influenced by the Swiss and German influences. And so that was a really interesting place as well. The farm base, as I got older, I would have gone there to help with, to be sent to pick fruit in fields and the the farms that they had in Camp Hill were biodynamic. But what I remember as a younger child visiting was the sort of sneaking off with the Camp Hill children that I knew, and again, finding a woods and playing at the same sort of shelter making and base making and all these kinds of things. But one of the things that a thread that I'd like to explore that, so there's a kind of an image of a child that had a lot of access to free play, nature, exploration. But that's when I was on holidays and that's when it was the evenings after school or the weekends. 
When I started school, I was very young. I was four. It could be four or five. And I know my mum has talked about wishing that she had gone with five for me. Because when I started school at four, that's where I began to have this other thread in my formation of who I was, of not fitting in very well. There's a a vocabulary that's kind of come to me through my own children, really, and their generation, that is about expanding the way we talk about different things. And I think that if we lived in a community life, if we lived in a society that was completely open to all forms of diversity and completely respectful of all forms of diversity, then possibly we wouldn't need the kinds of detailed language that I see emerging. Partly they were there in my own childhood, but I see emerging a much richer, deeper language of identity, of exploring identity through what I see in my own children's generation. One of the words that I've come across through their influence is a notion of passing. The notion of passing has come out of all sorts of places. It's come out of passing in terms of gender identity, and it's also come out of passing in terms of disability. And it's the idea that you can pass as normal. So that's passing is passing as normal. And so I think that when I was four years of age and I started out in a primary school, I think I began a journey without any language or understanding of myself. I began a journey of shock as I landed into that system, the the away with the fairies child, all of the things about me as personality that were emergent. And what I started talking about at the beginning of this exploration, in this episode, the notion that my identity is bound up in the part of a greater whole. I think I absolutely had that, as most children do in early childhood, where I I didn't feel the separation between me and the world. And I can remember that very, very clearly. I can remember having friends that were rocks and sticks and talking to the sea, like I said, and feeling that I was part of nature, not separate from it. But when that began to change was being in school. The very first class in Northern Ireland in school was still like a preschool, a kindergarten. There was play there. My favourite place in the classroom was, however, the sand pit. There was a large ceramic Belfast sink and one part of it had sand in it and the other part had a tap with water and little jugs and things. And and I can remember it for that's where I like to be. When it started to move into areas of learning what what a four-year-old is supposed to know in that time and in that education system, then you get into the letters or holding a pencil and writing something. I didn't know then, but I had really big problems with those aspects of schooling. So I already wasn't passing. I wasn't measuring up to what you were supposed to be able to do as a four-year-old at that time. I had a very kind teacher in that that year and a gentle teacher. That was the beginning of, of just the edge that I was going to come up against again and again was in trying to be taught how to use 
small motor skills for writing my letters. Also, the very beginning of trying to keep track of what you'd to bring to school. I remember constantly losing a pencil or a rubber. And I remember kind of conversations about that. So very early on. By the time I went into P2 and I had more expectations of that type of education on me, I started to struggle quite a lot. And that teacher, I do not remember as being as kind at all. And I think that at that point, my parents began to be alert to the fact that I was not happy when I was in school. And that really just deepened and deepened as my primary school years went on. The thing is that as I learned the skills that I was required to learn, and really I learned a lot of them much later than the other children, but I was able eventually to get on and do some of the things. Now, I was still, by P5, P6, I was still having issues of spelling, issues of forgetfulness. Where that was playing out, though, was these times when the teachers were very, very vocally critical of a child. And so what I can remember is just huge layers of criticism being told, you didn't learn your spellings, you're not good at that, why have you forgotten this again? And so I remember that feeling always of trepidation and fear that I was doing wrong and going to get it wrong and I was going to forget. And, you know, so there was the beginning of layers of anxiousness about going in to school. And that when I was being talked to in that way by teachers, the, the hierarchy that was the school and the way that you had punishments that were honestly really cruel in terms of, I think you'd call psychologically cruel. Um, it wasn't until I had one year of secondary school in Northern Ireland that it was also physical where caning was still in existence when I was in first year in the North. But in, in the primary school, it was basically tr tried to show you up as, as if by being very cross and critical and very direct in pointing out what you got wrong, that somehow that would motivate you as a child to do better. So I would be sent from one class up to the next class to with a note pinned on my tie to things I should remember, but to tell the teacher in the next class, this was the kind of little girl I was. I wasn't going to learn my spellings and they would be expecting me next year having not learned my spellings. And I had to do that standing in front of a whole class. I began to become quite distressed. And a lot of that distress, like it is with many children, was just being acted out. I had coming out in my body in some way. I, I started to get a lot of nosebleeds. And I was aware if you blew your nose hard or I gave it a kind of a, a knock on the side, it might start a nosebleed off again. And I used that sometimes to get out of a class and get some peace and get sent to a nurse and put in a little room with my head back. And so I was, I was clearly not happy by then. And this was distressing my, my parents. And in their day, it wasn't really, uh, the power in the, in the system was that they didn't have the, the same willingness and rights to, you know, to make a change or to go in and demand a change. I think they, my mother did, you know, they went in, they spoke to the principal, but the principal was the, the all authority. And, you know, they didn't really do anything to change. And in fact, one of the teachers in my six years of primary school that 
was the most difficult teacher for me was the principal. And so how could my parents go and say to her, you're being unquestionably cruel to our daughter? And I was starting to cry on my way home from school, you know, and all of these kinds of, of things. And the last layer of that was that that influenced, you know, my, my slight oddness, my perceived not fitting in didn't just extend to teachers trying to bring me into conformity of learning, but it extended to my peers and the attitude of teachers towards me, you know, knocked on. And I was quite isolated. I had some friends that my parents would bring me to after school, but in school they were often part of a gang of cruelness that was excluding me or directly, you know, saying nasty things to me, pushing me around the playground a bit. That experience of not knowing how to pass, not knowing how to to pass academically as a child that could learn, but also began to be your odd. And this feeling of your odd went on through my childhood into my first year in secondary school. And it is the place then that I begin to try to actively pass. So I kind of go through primary school in getting my joy outside of school and that freedom that I described first. And that was a holding. And what held me was this deeper connection to the wild world around me that I was allowed to experience. And what held me was the wider family and community that I could go and talk to. I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons I liked going to the old ladies and old men was that I think they probably did what older people do with children now. You know, I think they probably said, and how are you, Susie? And what are you doing? And I got to be a center of a a kind of positive regard from them. And it wasn't the same dynamic as as my mum, who stayed up at night and worried about me, but didn't have the ability to make a change in school or my siblings that I, I was around. It was these other wider family members. And I used to run away to one of my aunts quite regularly if I was falling out with my sister or my mother. And I think that, you know, that was the beauty of somewhere else to go and to be held. And my aunt would just ring my mum and say, she's back around with me. And then uh, I would get to feel, you know, defiant. So all these ways that I was beginning to express that unhappiness, there was still a holding outside of school. There was still this wider family to to begin to think there's there's other ways, there's other people, there's other interactions, and there's my friends in ecosystems that surrounded me. When I got to secondary school in the North, I decided consciously to try to fit in. So that's really where I, I began to learn this. I'm going to try to pass. I'm not going to be weird. I'm not going to be odd. I'm going to try to pass. And one of the ways that I did that was to change my name slightly. Something I hear being explored again through my own children and their contemporaries and this idea of having the the ability to change your own name and say, I think I'm going to have this name. In my day, I probably couldn't have gone to the range of diversity of, of names and choices that are available now, I think, for children and young people who are exploring identity today. But I, I was known in my family as Susie. My full name was Suzanne. So I decided when I went to secondary school that I would be Suzanne. And in my mind, I was trying to shed this identity of 
not being liked or not fitting in and not having many friends in any kind of a real sense. Sometimes the friends that I had were younger than me. I remember by the time I reached what was P6, I'd started to make friends with the P4s because they didn't know me. And I so I'd have like this little gang of P4s that I would hang out with. And remember one time, one of the children that most often picked on me and bullied me was with me and I and some of the the P4 group and there's probably five or six of them came over and I said get her and they kind of chased the the bully down the playground so I I think there was something beginning to emerge in uh proto uh leading <laughs> you know that that was sort of in that part of the story but um when I went to the first year of secondary school it was it was like who can I be now that won't be disliked, that won't be picked on, that the teachers will not criticize that, all these things. And in Northern Ireland, there was at the time, and I believe it still exists in in, ver- in a form, was an exam that you did called the 11 plus in P6 that was supposed to tell if you were very academically inclined or if you were not, you would go to something more considered vocational. And so there was the grammar schools and the techs and the high schools. And these were the different strands of schooling that existed and where you would get decided which of those you were was this 11 plus exam, the dreaded 11 plus exam, dreaded by children and parents alike. I took my 11 plus and didn't pass it and therefore didn't continue with the same group of children into the grammar school that many of the children I'd been in primary school were with, um, I went to the high school. And I think this worried my parents hugely. The high school was considered a rougher school because of educational disadvantage, presumably for the children that didn't pass their 11 plus. They also not only weren't necessarily academically inclined, but perhaps didn't have supportive environment, you know, at home or whatever. So it was considered the rougher school. And I loved it. (laughs) And it was the first place that I began to form some friendships. And I loved it. But my first day in the high school, I was in a physical fight. Now, I had physical fights quite regularly with one of my sisters and some of my cousins. I was always the bottom of that and I didn't I like it but I wasn't afraid of it in the same way as I was afraid of cruel words and so this wee girl came up to me and you can imagine sort of you know 12 or 13 year old I don't know what age we were um exactly came up to me and just said do you want to fight <laughs> and I um I kind of looked at her and was like um not really. <laughs> and she goes, well, I want to fight you. And uh, so I was like, okay. We went off down to this area with the class. Like she threatened this fight or challenged this fight in front of my contemporaries. And so we went off down with the class to this area of lockers where there were kind of rows of lockers um, perpendicular to the wall. So you could stand between two rows, like a sort of boxing ring. And at which point she started to fight me by hitting me. And, and the thing was that I, what I decided in my head was that I, I absolutely couldn't hurt somebody else. And I, there was no way that I felt like I was going to hit her back, but she'd asked to fight me. So I was going to let, I was going to stand there unafraid of being hit and let her hit me. I think I probably put out like very light 
punches back, but I felt within me power to hurt. And like as I had been down my garden carefully lifting slaters or crabs in the in the rock pools, you know, I didn't I didn't like things getting hurt, even though we I didn't seem to have the same compassion for mussels that we used for crab fishing. But I, I definitely was that child that picked insects up and felt great pain and anguish about little creatures being hurt. And I, I just couldn't hurt her. So this went on every break and every lunchtime for three days where I would have to go back with her and, and a large amount of the class would come and watch as she hit me a lot and I didn't hit her back a lot. My parents probably don't know this story, are kind of appalled because their fears were that this was a rough school and here it was happening to me. But there was a transformative growth all of life for me and I believe for everybody you don't really grow without great discomfort, whether that's self-examination of great discomfort or some experience that is really hard and tough. That is the, the opportunity for growth. And so this was quite transformative because at the end of three days, the night before, I probably do detention, before the third day, I had slept funny on my neck and I got a really bad creak, kind of a creak. You, if you turn your head suddenly one way, you know, the pain is really, really excruciating. We're fighting away. And I think probably she was getting fed up of the fact that I hadn't given in and I hadn't, she would ask me to concede. It's like, so am I beat you? You know, and I, and I had some tenacity and it was like, no, I could keep doing this. I didn't like it, but I could somehow keep doing it. And so that third day, she at one point grabbed my hair and pulled my neck and pulled me down. I was very, very much in a lot of pain and I, and I screamed and then I cried and then I said, okay, you've won. And the whole class was there. But this moment was not only transformative as something in me where I began to experience and tap into other strengths within me rather than feeling the victim that I'd felt most of my primary school. The other thing that happened that was kind of remarkable for me was that the class all were really nice to me. So that in that instance, because I had stood up to the girl who'd presumably been going around saying to other people, do you want to fight me? And they'd mostly said no. And I had been the fool that didn't realize I could say no. Um, I, I had, you know, meekly said yes. That I was befriended and also by this girl herself. It wasn't that she was now going to turn into a tormentor, say, see, I, I beat you, you're scared of me. Not at all. What happened after that was that she became my friend. She respected me for having tried to fight her. And she obviously felt um, secure in the fact that I hadn't beaten her. Amongst girls in Bangor Girls High, I found some friends when we moved from Northern Ireland to the South. So I only did the one year in that school. I didn't stay in touch with those girls. And I didn't stay in touch with anyone from primary school, but I bumped in one time much, much later to two of them, including the one who I'd fought. They told me stories of how many of the, the girls that we knew had become pregnant young and how many, you know, kind of challenges there had been in, in people I had remembered. But the thing that was kind of funny for me was that while I thought I was fitting in more, while I thought I had learned to pass, in fact, what had happened from their perspective was that I was very odd. <laughs> so when I met up, them, we had this chat. And by then, I, I might have been 18 or 19. 
when I saw them again and, and I had learned to pass even more. And so I was chatting away to them. I think we met in a cinema and they, they said, you were quite odd when you were younger, weren't you? And they saw me and remember me as odd. And that has continued to happen. If I look at the same friends that I do stay in touch with in the South with, I think they look back and think you were quite odd because I was then a product of all of that sort of attempt at schooling when I did go south. So I, I might talk about that in another episode. The other bit that I want to finish on remembering in that period of my life was this notion of beginning to have these little threads that you start to weave together, like I'm attempting in these podcast episodes to have threads that weave together, that you begin to figure out the bits of you that are your inner guides, your strengths, or the things you could pull together to form person in beyond childhood. There was one other strength-based thread, I think, that came, which was about survival, that surviving the fight, surviving the cruelty of the teachers and many of the children being held by nature. And, you know, the only time that I experienced an actual dangerous threat to my life was an almost drowning accident that I experienced when I think I was around eight or nine. So that wonderful independence that we had to go and learn, we were taught how to swim by a swimming pool that was on the edge of the sea that the tide came in and out of that many people would remember from that area called Picky Pool. And we, we were taught to swim very young and in freezing cold North Irish Sea water. And I can remember standing shivering on the edge of this pool with a pool instructor and we, we learned how to swim there and we learned how to swim in, in holidays. Um, we had some amazing holidays all around Ireland and mainland Britain. And eventually we had holidays in France. My father decided to pack us up in a Hillman Hunter with a tent and we, we got all the way to the Mediterranean and I swam and really learned to swim well in the Mediterranean. I used to swim out on that camping holiday with my dad and my sister to a boy right out on the water, in deep, deep water and swim. So I was a competent and confident swimmer. And as I said, I loved the sea. I felt like I was a part of the sea. I felt deeply connected to the sea. But in the summers in in our seaside town, they would put out two big wooden heavy diving boards and one huge hessian mat covered raft and the raft was anchored by a big chain underneath in its middle and that chain was anchored all the way up to the to the shore and when the tide was out you could walk out along the chain to the raft and when the tide was in it it was there floating and you could jump off the diving boards. And what we used to do as children with our parents, whoever was sitting, keeping an eye on, on us from the beach, we would get on this big raft and huge numbers of children would get on the raft and we would jump off it and so on. And one occasion we doing a game we loved, which was to a lot of children to run from one side of the raft to the other. So all of our weight would get this big, big thing tipping back and forth and back and forth. And then, of course, people would fall off the edge, screaming in delight. But one day I fell off the edge and whatever way I, I came down in the water, when I came up, I was under the raft. And 
I banged my head on the raft and I wildly looked around and tried to see where the edge of the raft was and I couldn't. It was churning water. It wasn't always crystal clear, but I could see very little. I went up and down, I think three times I went up and banged my head on the bottom of the raft and I was losing air and and panicking. And what happened then was some sort of change in me, something I drew on, some survival instinct inside of myself that basically was like a part of me saying to another part of me, if you keep doing this, if you keep panicking and just going up and and the bottom of the raft was covered in barnacles and scratchy and was hurting and I was in pain and panicking. But some part of me said, if you keep doing that, this isn't going to end well. The threat of death became real that I was in in real danger. And I think we flirted so much with danger that we thought we was in in danger. We'd climb high on a tree. I used to climb up a drain pipe into a window in my house. We played with fire when we weren't supposed to. I think we flirted with danger a lot, but I think something switched to the recognition that this was a life-threatening situation. And I calmed and I lay in the water and I thought, I had, I thought, stop panicking, stop not thinking, just think for a minute. And so I calmed and I lay, swam down again a bit and lay sort of still and thought, how do I get out of here? And I remembered the chain. And so I swam down and I could see the central chain. What I did was I went to that chain and I held on to the chain and pulled myself down to the very bottom of the sand. And then I could feel the chain that ran to the shore. And so then I pulled myself in one direction because what I hadn't been able to figure out was which I'd swum in lots of directions in the three attempts and I wasn't getting to the edge. So this gave me a direction and I pulled myself along the chain for quite a distance. And then I came up and I was just out from under the edge, gasping, gasping for air, deeply distressed at what had happened, but breathing air and feeling that that rush of thrill of survival that I had made it and I was okay and that I was so pleased with myself too. I think I was proud of the horror that I'd come into because I didn't feel a very powerful child. And I was I was like, wow, I look what I just did. And I look around and like many experiences that happen for children that have those kind of moments where it's huge for you. I look around and nobody has noticed. All the children are still playing the same game and squealing. And, you know, I swim to the shore and I'm very tired and my mum is there and I tell her what happened, but nobody had noticed. And I think that also made a very big impression on me, which was that even these people who cared deeply about me, that I there was something I might have to do on my own that people might not always notice or know how to look after me. And I think that then, you know, fed into that choices that I made in trying to survive when I moved out of primary school into secondary. There was these threads of, I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. I'm going to have to. And that, and I think that tenacity of just, I'm going to keep trying has stayed with me for a long time. And where I am now and where I'll finish up this episode is that where I am now is that while I did learn to pass, while I actively learned to fit in and maybe still 
those people that know me know that there's quirkiness about me, but that in the, in the mainstream world that I've grown up in, that I've learned to pass a great deal. I feel like as I come into this decade of my life, as I've become older, I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> and while I still can function in my, in, in working life or in social life, I feel like I'm beginning to move back out. And part of that is the vulnerability of putting out some story, um, through these episodes. And, and part of that's the vulnerability of saying, I think I'll begin to unpick and examine my life story because I think through that, it's it's feeding into the threads where I'm talking about um, systems and oppressive systems. It's feeding into the threads where I'm talking about our ancestry and indigeneity and the feeling of an indigenous. Um, and it feeds into like what I was drawn towards in terms of art and creativity and nature and ecosystem intelligence and ecology and permaculture and also sociocracy, you know, flat systems, not oppressive par over systems. All of that comes from my own life story. So I've decided to share some of it. 